Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word throughout the seasons of the church's life. In this episode, Mark Hamilton, an Old Testament scholar, discusses the scriptures for the second week after Easter 2022. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this second in a series of podcasts spanning the season from Easter to Pentecost in, in the year C of the lectionary or 2022 in our normal calendar. Uh, this is a season in which we point toward the day, Pentecost, when the triumph of God over evil, over sin, over death is made available, made public to the wider world. This is a season of celebration of God's saving work amongst all human beings. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for the chance to hear these words of apostles and prophets and singers of old. Help us to hear faithfully and trustingly so that we ourselves may experience transformation and declare your praise to those around us. We pray in the name of the one whom you raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The texts for this Sunday are the following, Acts 9, 1 through 6, or if you want to keep going, all the way to verse 20, uh, Psalm 30, Revelation 5, 11 to 14, and John 21, 1 through 19. I'll take those in a slightly different order. The, the first one is Psalm 30, which is a, a psalm of thanksgiving after deliverance from some unspecified malady. Many of these psalms of thanksgiving use very stereotyped language about either social isolation or physical suffering. They talk about enemies that they have, and so they, they could be applied to lots of different specific situations. You can't really diagnose the singer's specific problem from the text because the language, as is true usually in hymns, uh, in religious music, uh, is, is stereotyped. It's the language that's used for different kinds of settings. That doesn't mean that it isn't powerful or important, because it is. We need sometimes to speak in familiar language to express things that are difficult. And that's what, that's what happens here. Uh, the psalm opens with the praise to God, uh, crying out to God and, and, and saying, God, I have cried out to you and you have helped me. Thank you for listening to me. And by the way, I don't care who knows about it. I'm going to tell everybody. And then you get this very interesting bit in verse 3. Um, uh, the Lord brought up your life from Sheol. Sheol is the realm of the dead. Uh, this is a this is a puzzling language in one sense because all over the Psalms you get this sense that on the one hand nobody can praise God in Sheol because they're dead and on the other hand this person has escaped Sheol. Um, they don't quite mean by death what we mean by death. You know, in, in our world we have a medical clinical definition of death. Death is when the brain stops working. And you're either dead or you're not dead. But in the Psalms, uh, there's, a, there's a different view. The realm of death is, is more expansive. 
serious illness puts you in the realm of death. Serious social isolation puts you in the realm of death. And of course, death puts you in the realm of death. Um, so, so it is a little bit different than the way our medicalized understanding of death would tell us. But actually, it's also intuitively uh, reasonable. Uh, we all know what it's like, either because of our own experiences with illness or some terrible crisis, to feel like we've just died. Um, or we've seen people in that position. And we perhaps have even been in a position when we, we longed for death because it would be a relief from the suffering that we're experiencing. Well, that's what this psalmist um, uh, and anybody who sings this psalm uh, is familiar with. The, we, this, the, the, the character, the I of the psalm, the, the character, the implied author of the psalm, has experienced some tragedy that could be reasonably compared to actual literal physical death. And yet, this person has been snatched back from Sheol, has left the city of the dead and come back to, to the city of the living. Uh, and so, verse 4, we hear the psalmist crying out to, the, to anybody who will listen. Remember, that's how laments end, right? When you lament, you promise that once you get deliverance, you'll make sure to tell everybody. And then in the hymns, you tell everybody. And that's, that's what's happening here. Uh, and so we get this praise to God. We get also, you know what, without trying to press it too far, I think the language of the exit from lament. You know, when you, when you do a ritual of any sort, there's an entrance and there's an exit. There's a, a way to start it and a way to end it. And usually there are words that you use um, for example, in a prayer that most of us would pray daily, we might begin by addressing God and we end by saying amen. We have an entrance and we have an exit. Um, and that's true of other sorts of ritual acts, of uh, religious acts. And, and so it is here. There's an exit from weeping. You have to bring the weeping to an end. But the weeping has not ended because the person is too tired to keep on going or because nobody's willing to listen. The weeping ends because God has intervened. And that's the point of this psalm. And hence we get this beautiful line in verse 11 about mourning being turned into dancing. These two extreme human actions, both actually physically very demanding emotionally, lots of chemistry going on during both of these things uh, in your body. Uh, and we move from one extreme to the other. Uh, and therefore we're celebrating. Uh, it, it does seem clear that worship in the temple, worship in ancient Israel, was not the quiet, staid affair that most of us are used to and that I actually find most comfortable. Uh, there is there is music they're singing, they're, they're instruments blaring, and there's dancing and movement and shouting and, and so on and so forth as humans pour out their emotions to God. So, Psalm 30. Now, speaking of pouring out your emotions to God and speaking of being delivered from Sheol, we get this story in, in Acts chapter 9. 
It's one of three accounts of Saul of Tarsus's call to be an apostle. Notice I didn't use the word conversion, right, because he doesn't move from one religion to the other, because, and he doesn't move from one religion to the other because Judaism and Christianity were not separate religions in the first century. He's called to be an apostle to the Gentiles to share the good news with all who are around us, all around him who are in in what Alexander Campbell used to call the hearing distance. He wants to extend the, the, the he wants to bring the microphone to the Gentiles so they can hear what God has done. It's an, an amazing story. I mean, most of us know the story. Paul, the, the amount of movement that this man, Saul of Tarsus, has to do is astonishing because this is a man who hated Christians. He arrested them. He put them in jail. He tried to kill them. He used whatever legal authority or pseudo-legal authority he could find to do it. And then he's on the road to Damascus. Again, the phrase that has entered the English lexicon, even for people who don't know where it's come, where it came from. He's on the road to Damascus and he sees the light and he hears the voice calling his name, Saul, Saul. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Now, I don't know what physiological response Paul had at this moment. Uh, my guess is that whatever you, whatever response you have when he, when you're absolutely scared out of your mind, is what he had. Uh, it's a terrifying encounter. I, I didn't, I didn't get it wrong just a little bit. Paul, Saul must have been thinking. I didn't. I didn't mess up slightly. I, no, no. I, I was. I had it all backwards. I had it all wrong. That this Jesus, far from being a anti-God force, far from being a rebel against God, whose whose crazed followers I need to put down, far from being any of that. This is the one who. Um, this is the one, whom God has exalted, as Lord in Christ. And so Saul uh, goes into Damascus. There are a lot of ways to read this story of his call to be an apostle, but I, I think one way to read it is, is in connection with what we just read in Psalm 30, which is, it, which is that Saul has been delivered from the realm of death. He was a perpetrator. A, a, a people, he was killing people, but he himself was dead as well. He was deader than the people he'd killed in many ways. And he's being rescued from Sheol. And that, if you read his letters, uh, does seem to be how he sees it. That uh, he was rescued, um, as well as all these other people. It's interesting to me that the, uh, the, the book of Acts doesn't tell you much about the next couple of days. It tells us he was praying and fasting and all of that. But the book is not a voyeuristic book, so it doesn't tell us what he was praying. Repentance, surely. Um, crying out to God, longing for an answer. And he finally gets an answer when someone comes and tells him. Ananias comes and says, uh, I need to tell you, I need to tell you what the story really is. 
Speaking of what the story really is, we turn then to the third text I want to consider, and that's from the book of Revelation. You know, Revelation, I've always, I've always thought that Revelation would make a wonderful opera. There's a lot of singing, a lot of noise. It's a cast of thousands. Uh, it's a huge melodrama uh, about the triumph of good over evil, and about the defeat of the forces of evil. Uh, it's, you know, John, John living in a Roman city, must have known at least a little bit about plays. Any good-sized Roman city had a theater uh, and would have had some dramatic sense. And certainly, certainly the book shows, if not that, it's not exactly a play, but that, that sense of theatricality, the drama of redemption. He's very good at uh, the, the, the dramatic moment. So we get this in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, they numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Right, The, book, the, the heavenly throne room is crammed full of people. It's this huge throng of people singing with full voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You may be familiar with the words from the end, near the end of Handel's Messiah, the next, just before the Amen. But, but, but I, I'm struck by a lot of things in this, but just, again, the sense of the drama and the sense of that it's, it's not just the lone delivered person who sings the song so others can hear, as was the case in the book of Psalms. It's, it's, and it's not even just a, a human congregation. It's this enormous crowd of people and angels and, and everybody we can think of, all of whom have experienced the kind of deliverance that we also see in the Psalms. And so they announce their, their sense of this deliverance uh, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Those, you know, heaven, earth, in the sea sounds like uh, sounds like Exodus and Leviticus and the way they kind of organized the world of Genesis one. And all so it's very biblical. And all in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, to God and to Jesus, right. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. One of the things uh, that's striking about the book of Revelation is it's in its reflections on worship. And it is, it is really, a, the whole book is a, a kind of opera of worship to God. But one of the things that it, it seems to be about is it's not it's not something you sit back and observe uh, yes i mean john does observe it here because it's new to him and he's so blown away it's not something you sit back and observe though it's something you participate in uh and it's not about the performance of the people singing it's about the content of the song that's what matters this is where I think, if I can preach for a second, this is where I think 
the modern American church has gone not just a little wrong, but horribly wrong. Because we're so impressed by the entertainment culture. We're so caught up in the emotional excitement of the moment and so determined that the, the way we're going to measure churches, the quality of our worship is by the performance standards we would see on television, that we have completely missed the point. I, I think you could even raise the question of whether our worship really is worship or is it just an empty set of an empty time? Is it maybe even destructive time? Uh, the content is what matters. And here we see the, 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 the heavenly assembly and therefore the reader who's being drawn in to this heavenly assembly uh, praising the God for, for going through the suffering and for delivering Jesus from the suffering. Let me phrase it that way a little bit better. For delivering Jesus from the suffering and therefore preparing the way to deliver all the rest of us from the suffering. This, I think, must be especially impressive if you, if you think about the setting in the first couple of chapters of, of Revelation. These tiny little churches in Asia Minor, people who probably aren't being persecuted at the moment but have been in recent memory, and their, their, their smallness must impress them greatly. Uh, they're not Americans who think they're big, right? They know they're not. And yet to be drawn into this giant chorus of praise to the ruler of all things, to know that their suffering is not in vain, that it has been noticed by God, that it will be relieved and valued and honored, uh, is a word of extraordinary hope. Again, there is no church that doesn't suffer. The church that doesn't suffer is not the true church. It's a, it's a fake church. And the church that doesn't join others in suffering is not the true church. But here in Revelation, we get the sense of the end game. It's not suffering for its own sake. It's suffering to build solidarity with those with the, all around us so that we can come before the throne of God. Now, that takes us then to our last text for the day, uh, John chapter 21. Oh, it's a fishing story. I know as a kid, um, when living with lots of people who love fishing more than I did, frankly, though I love the fact that they loved fishing because then we got to eat some of it at the end. Uh, I, I like this story, and I imagine a lot of other people do too. Uh, the story is is familiar. Uh, Jesus goes fishing. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the apostles go fishing, and they fished all night, but they caught no fishes, as the song we used to sing on the church bus goes. Um, they fished all night. They didn't catch a thing. And Jesus has comes to the shore and says, "Hey, have you caught anything?" And they say, "Well, no. It's been a lousy night. We've not, you know, nothing's biting." And he says, well, why don't you try the other side of the boat, which is a pretty weird statement for a fisherman, because usually fish don't all congregate on one side of the boat unless you know about it. 
But they say, oh, well, we'd have nothing to lose. So we, they tried that, and they get this huge draft of fishes, 153 fishes. People worry, you know, argue about why 153. It's a pretty random number. Um, I don't have any good answer to that either. It's a lot of fish, and, um, you know, these are people who fish for a living, not just as a hobby or just for fun. Um, and so they, this will pay the bills for a while. It's a successful, successful night. But of course, it's really not a fishing story at all. Or rather, it's not about the apostles fishing for fish. It's about Jesus fishing for the apostles. And so they recognize who he is. And they come and they, they join him for breakfast. But, so that's one bit. But there is this other bit that we should explore at a little greater length, and that is this encounter between Jesus and Peter. Uh, this is a text that I think is misinterpreted, frankly. Uh, people who know a little bit of Greek notice that Jesus switches the verb for love from agapao to phileo, and then, and then say something like, well, the third time Jesus asked him, not do you love me, but do you like me? That's just wrong. I, I Just to cut to the chase. Yes, he does switch the verb, but he also switches the nouns for lamb, and he also switches the verb for feeding. So I don't think that Peter is grieved because Jesus switched the verb. Uh, and I, the reason I don't think that is, again, because Jesus keeps switching a lot of the words, and also because Peter answers him with that later verb, phileo. You know that I phileo you. So if he's grieved to be said, do you like me? He wouldn't have said, yes, I like you. <laughs> he would have said, no, I, I love you, agapao. The truth is, however, that the two words don't have a sharp distinction in meaning. Um, that's kind of an old preacher's tale, really. That in the real world, um, they, they, they have overlapping meanings. And Jesus really hasn't changed, hasn't changed the vocabulary for that reason. The reason Peter is grieved at Jesus' questioning is because he asks him the third time. Peter, just a few days earlier, denied Jesus three times. And the reader of John gets that immediately, and, and, and in the book, John, uh, Peter gets that immediately. Oh, oh, yeah, I did, didn't I? I messed up. I'm sorry. And Jesus says, uh, feed my sheep. He says to the one who a few days before had denied him in front of a crowd, who had refused to acknowledge the saving work that was happened because he was scared and confused and he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. Uh, Jesus says to that person, go feed my sheep. Peter, I'm retrieving you. I'm rehabilitating you. He was in Sheol himself too, like the psalmist, like Saul of Tarsus. And like many of us, when we think our lives are not going in any kind of meaningful direction, or we think we've lost our way as people of faith, Jesus reaches out to us too 
and says, Go feed my sheep. Your life is not wasted. Not as long as you are willing to let God into it. And that, for this season and for every season, is very good news. Thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. God bless each of us in days ahead. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.